Hello and welcome to Living a Culture of Life podcast by Human Life International. I'm your host, Colleen, and I'm joined today by Bridget Slidkey, our Executive Administrative Assistant. Welcome, Bridget. Thank you. It's great to have you on the show today. I've been watching you do this show for almost a year now, and it's exciting to actually be on it. Yeah, it's exciting to have you on the show today, too. And today we're going to be having a really fun episode talking about examples of positive masculinity in Lord of the Rings. And it's really important to uphold examples of men and masculine virtue in literature, especially in today's day and age, because there's been a concerted attack on masculinity and fatherhood in our culture for the past 60 plus years. And this is directly related to the breakdown of the family, the sexual revolution, and all the evils such as abortion flowing from that. So one way that we can help turn back the tide in our culture is by looking at examples of masculinity in literature and saying, what does a true man look like? What virtues does he have? How does he treat the people around him? And using that as a model for our behavior, what do we look for in men? What should we inspire boys to become? So Bridget, what got you into Lord of the Rings originally? Because you know so much about Tolkien and all of his characters. I knew I had to interview you when we decided to do this episode. So what got you into it? Uh, well, actually, uh, speaking of examples of masculinity, uh, my dad's the one that got me into it. Oh, uh, that's, that's really cool. Uh, he found the books when he was a kid, um, absolutely fell in love with them, the world building, the language. Um, he's a historian. Um, so the in-depth history obviously really appealed to him. Uh, and so when I was a kid, um, honestly, one of my first memories is him reading The Hobbit out loud to me and my siblings. Uh, I remember one particular instance of us, I must, I must have been like, under 10 sitting there talking about the forging of the rings of power. <laughs> and it's honestly one of my favorite memories from being a kid. Um, by the time that the Lord of the Rings movies themselves came out, I remember asking him when he came back from the first movie, if Frodo had thrown the ring in yet. So the ending was completely spoiled for me. Um, I read the trilogy for the first time when I was about nine, I remember. Okay. And I have probably read it six or seven times since then, at least. Yeah. Um, plus the Cimmerian and the entire history of Middle Earth. And um, so you know a lot about his backstory and all that too. Mm -hmm. Let's jump into that because Tolkien didn't grow up with a father figure. So why, why do we trust his examples of masculinity? What, what gave him the ability to be able to write about men in a really great way without even growing up with a father? Well, Tolkien's father died when he was four. Um, he okay. didn't even really remember him very well. I think he maybe had one or two memories of mm -hmm. his father. Um, and his mom, he was born in South Africa, what we would now call South Africa. Um, his mother moved um, back to England um, specifically for his health. Um, the temperature and the environment down there was really bad for him and he kept getting sick. Mm -hmm. um, so he moved back. His father was supposed to follow. Um, his dad died um, before he was ever able to come back to England and, and join the rest of the family. And so... Yes, he did grow up without a biological father figure, but like many of his own characters who are orphans, um, his he did have a strong male figure to look up to, um, and namely a priest um, that his mother entrusted the guardianship of him and his brother Hillary to before she died. Um, he lost his mother at a very young age as well, uh, and that was Father Francis Xavier Morgan. Um, okay. Tolkien considered him a father. He called him Father Francis. Um, he, I, I think there's a quote somewhere talking about just the kind, how huge the influence that Father Francis had on him as a person. Mm -hmm. um, and Tolkien just, um, as far as masculine traits, I, I mean, Tolkien is a scholar, mm -hmm. but he also fought in World War I. He lived through two world wars um, and he raised several sons of his own. So I would say that between that 
experience. He has a pretty deep understanding of, he saw, you know, heroism in war. He saw the evils of war. He saw um, really good examples of masculinity um, across his very long life and across a really interesting time of history. I mean, he was born in 1892 and he died in 1973. So wow. that's a the quite a span. <laughs> yeah. The breadth of experience um, that he lived through. I mean, basically the end of the Victorian period all the way into the seventies yeah. is I mean, he saw the, the beginning. I mean, the, not even the beginnings. He saw the destruction of what we would call traditional masculinity. So it's really interesting that he would have seen the downfall of masculinity that way too. I've never, I didn't think about that when we were prepping for the podcast that he would have grown up in a time frame where masculinity was valued and appreciated and admired. And then by the seventies, the sexual revolution had already happened. He would have seen it completely undermined and he would have lived to the time of the hollow man too, which is the time in between the wars, world war one mm -hmm. and world war two. How did that play into his work? Uh, well, it's interesting you bring that up because Tolkien, um, a lot of the friends that he went to war with died. Um, he lost a lot of friends in World War I. Uh, and many of the people that came back from World War I, like Tolkien, um, the poets and the scholars and the writers, frankly, despaired. Um, and they despaired in different ways. Um, some of them went with, you know, nothing's worth in life, so let's just party. And some of them went with nothing's worth in life. Let's just wallow in our depression. Was that like F. Scott Fitzgerald versus like T.S. Eliot, basically? Yes, I, I would say. I would say uh, those were actually the people I was thinking about. <laughs> um, Great Gatsby versus The Wasteland. Yes. Yeah. Um, whereas Tolkien, um, I think, picked the healthiest route that you probably could um, at that time. And tried to find the light and the darkness. And I do think his Catholic faith and how strong of a faith he had played a lot into that. Um, when everything in the world went dark, he had something to cling to. And mm -hmm. it comes across very, very strongly in his literature. It comes across very strongly in his characters um, and in the difference between hope and despair. So why do you think that it's important for people to have examples of masculinity in literature to look at? Why do you think in today's day and age it's particularly important? Uh, well, the first start the examples have just gotten exponentially worse, <laughs> worse. Um, it is hard I mean you look at the the books that are coming out you look at the movies um, whether they're written by men or women um, the examples what is being touted as masculine or as good traits in men has just gotten horrifically bad mm -hmm. um, the men tend to either have toxic versions of what people would see as stereotypical masculine traits, mm -hmm. or they're completely devoid of even what we'd call toxic versions of that. And they are just wimpy and effeminate. They've been, they've been drained of everything that would make them men. I feel like they're either your toxic masculinity, your effeminate man, who's basically a man that has all the virtues of being like all feminine virtues and is probably looks kind of feminine. And mm -hmm. Those are considered the pretty boys and kind of the idols of society and in the in the male sense in today's society. Yeah. Or they're like the bumbling and bumbling sitcom father, where they don't really have any kind of real relationship with their family. It's beer and hot dogs and football. Yeah. Um, so yes, you're either somebody who has been, I, and I say this hesitantly, hyper um, manly 
in the worst possible way in the sense that they bring out the things that, you know, the aggressiveness and the um, violence. What's perceived as manly is violence and aggressiveness, not. Yes. And, you know, maybe uh, an overwhelming pursuit of tons of women or Mm -hmm. all of those kinds of. The red pill men, basically. Andrew Tate's of the world. Yes. Yes. Um, And. So you either have that as an example, which obviously is appealing to nobody, and especially when that's perceived as a conservative value, because um, mm-hmm. those people would tout themselves as being red-pilled and, you know, right-wing and all of that. Or you have, yes, the Harry Styles of the world, um, and then somewhere in between, yes, the bumbling dad who can't do anything right and is kind of embar- like his daughters and his sons are embarrassed by him. Just roll um, their eyes. Oh my gosh, dad. Dad he, jokes. Yeah. yeah. And not like dad jokes are bad, but that there is, mm-hmm. there's been this sitcom father that's been going on in all sorts of TV shows for years where the dad is the laughing stock. He's the comic relief. He has absolutely no real masculine good qualities. Or no authority. Um, mm-hmm. As the father of the family, he doesn't have any authority. And so Tolkien's books can be a remedy to this because a lot of people know Lord of the Rings. They've either read the books or seen the movies. Mm-hmm. And so when you have good examples of masculinity in those movies and books, then people have something to look up to. They have something to model themselves after. And even if a boy is growing up without a good father figure, he can look for examples of masculinity in literature. And a girl who might be growing up without a father or with a weak father can look at these examples and say, okay, I actually value this in a man. So it's super important that children and then even adults who maybe grew up without parent, like a father figure have someone to look up to where they can recognize those qualities in a healthy, virtuous way. Yes. And, and I, I think- would say that, yes, uh, Tolkien obviously is is doing that in his books. I mean, we see something similar with the Narnia books. That's mm-hmm. still one of the more popular children's fantasy stories where we see healthy, um, healthy sibling relationship, um, healthy versions of masculinity and Edmund and, and I was going to say, Peter. maybe not the healthy sibling relationship when Edmund betrays all his siblings. But other than that, uh, it, it works out. <laughs> The, uh, the you know, obviously repenting of that and coming back from it is super important to sibling relationships. I have seven siblings and <laughs> trust me, we do not always get along. Um, but it's important, like, to again, see that not just the good side of that, but when mm-hmm. things go bad, how do you come back from that? And, yeah. and we'll get into that with Tolkien's characters. They're not perfect um, and where their flaws are and how imp- important it is to see examples, not just of good masculinity, but of seeing good men who fail and then pick themselves up. Mm-hmm. Well, let's just jump right into that then. So I feel like the most obvious apparent one that everyone's going to have immediately come to mind when they hear masculinity in Lord of the Rings is Aragorn. So let's just, I don't want to say get the standard masculine traits out of the way, but let's just talk about how he embodies those because he's a really good example for that. He's a great leader. He's a great father figure. What traits of masculinity would a boy who's reading Lord of the Rings, what should he be looking up to in Aragorn? Or what should a girl who's reading this book see in Aragorn that is going to reflect a good man to her? I mean, obviously, we talked about briefly the stereotypical things you mentioned. Um, Courage, um, leadership. Um, Honestly, a huge part of him being a good leader um, is charisma. And not everybody has that, but it's good to see that embodied in a good leader especially a a fictional character because in that Mm -hmm. case Tolkien can imbue him with any characteristic that he wants to Um, it's interesting to note that Aragorn himself is an orphan um, and in fact has some similarities to Tolkien's own childhood in the sense that um, Aragorn loses his father at a very young age he's two I think Tolkien was four Mm -hmm. Um, 
his mother does live a bit longer than Tolkien's own mother did, but she also dies um, long before the the fellowship actually does, happens. Does Tolkien give Aragorn a father figure that he looks up to and can he model does. himself El- after? Elrond. Okay. Um, Elrond is a actually I would say in some ways Aragorn has a lot of characteristics that are would make for a good father. Mm-hmm. But since we don't really see him with any of his children, uh, we know that he has a son and several daughters. Um, but Tolkien doesn't actually show us what the family life is like. Uh, we can just extrapolate based off of the virtues that we do see in him. Mm-hmm. But Elrond is a really good example of a father figure. Um, Elrond, um, just for people who are less familiar with the lore, um, Elrond's brother um, is um, one of Aragorn's ancestors. And so Elrond sees his role as taking care of the descendants of his brother who died. And so he goes out of his way. Um, Aragorn is not the first of his brother's descendants that he's mentored and helped grow up, but he's the one, he's the last in a long line. And I think the one that Elrond is the closest to, um, he really raises him as a foster son Mm -hmm. um, in Rivendell. And in fact, um, Aragorn doesn't know who his real father is until he's 20. And Elrond's the one that tells him that and tells him of this great destiny that can lie before him, but that isn't assured. Um, and that he's the heir to the reunited kingdom if he can reunite them. So we have courage, we have leadership, we have charisma. And they're stereotypical for a reason. They're so important that men have something like that to look up to. And that's a lot of the things that are lacking in today's society. Are there any like masculine traits about Aragorn that you are surprising? I think one that comes to mind would definitely be, I mean, he is a scholar. Mm-hmm. Um, he, I mean, he's not as much of a, a scholar as you would see like Elrond himself um, or, you know, maybe somebody like Faramir who is mentored by Gandalf. Um, Aragorn is definitely more of a, a wandering um, sword in some ways, especially early on in the story. Um, but this is something that he gets from Elrond. I think the more one of the more surprising ones would be a healer. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that can be directly tied into a couple of things. Certainly uh, Tolkien has multiple characters that can be seen as Christ types. He doesn't have any one central figure. Like there's no Aslan in Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, there is a god, um, but there is no Christ figure as like Aslan. Um, and I mean, Christ the King, obviously, Aragorn takes a lot of, you know, traits and there is some sort of um, mirror there. Mm-hmm. Um, Aragorn is meant to embody some of those same traits that we would see in Christ the King. But I think and I think the healing is a really important one of those. Um, it certainly comes um from Aragorn's lineage, uh, but the ability for him to fight to protect and then turn around and heal wounds. And um, not just heal physical wounds, but mental and spiritual wounds, I think is is something you don't often see, especially in fantasy literature, um, as far as a trait that a warrior king would have. And it makes sense when you think about masculinity tied in with fatherhood, because a father is going to be there to heal wounds, to help pick up the kids when they fall or to be there. And he should be an emotional guide for his children as well. And when you realize that masculinity and fatherhood are so linked, like a good man is going to be a good father or a good father is going to be a good man and that they're not separate. They're not opposed to each other. That totally makes sense that a good example of masculinity is also going to involve some type of healing Mm -hmm. in some way, shape or form. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Um, And you really see that, um, you see that on multiple occasions when 
Um, he heals Frodo after he's first stabbed by the Morgul blade. Um, he, he can't heal him completely, but he can at least stem the tide um, and, and keep him going until he meets up with Glorfindel and with Elrond himself, who is a master healer. Um, but you also see that in his interactions with um, Faramir, Eowyn, and Pippin, who have all been brought low by the Nazgûls. And they're all, um, specifically Eowyn and Merry, um, both helped destroy the Lord of the Nazgûl. And just the mere fact of holding a weapon that helped kill him was enough to deeply injure them mentally mm. and and spiritually and that obviously has very real physical effects uh, in Tolkien's world and Aragorn is able to call them back um, out of the darkness is is the way that it's literally described and so it's interesting to see um, there's a, a, a much quoted line the hands of the king are the hands of a healer um, and that and and that that's a, actually a symbol of his kingship uh, which is really interesting and you can see that. I mean, obviously, there's something very beautiful and very noble about men that choose to become doctors and healers mm -hmm. in whatever way. Yeah, that's beautiful. And it's not, like I said, it's that's why I wanted to ask about a surprising one, because I feel like you think masculine, warrior king, example of masculinity mm -hmm. in Lord of the Rings, and Aragorn immediately comes to mind. And the fact that masculinity is so much more rounded, well-rounded than just good leader looking out for the weak. It's all important. And I'm not saying that to negate those qualities in Aragorn, but I do think it's really beautiful to bring out those other, maybe gentler masculine traits that are there as well. When you see them working together, you see Aragorn as a full person. He's not just, you know, raw, raw, warrior king kind of thing. Um, he also goes out of his way to learn his trade, as it were, both as a warrior and as a king. Mm -hmm. um, he, you could call it almost an apprenticeship. Um, when he's younger, he travels in disguise to Gondor, which is going to be the seat of his future power. And uh, he doesn't tell anyone his name or his lineage. Uh, he enrolls as a soldier and he actually fights with um, Denethor, who later becomes the steward of Gondor, as when they're both young men. And there's an immediate difference in uh, how they're perceived. Um, and actually, that's another place where we see Aragorn find a father figure in the old steward of, of Gondor, Ecthalion, uh, which Denethor actually becomes a little bit jealous because he thinks his father is favoring, favoring Aragorn. Uh, Aragorn's just, he's better at like spending time with his men. He doesn't hold himself aloof or above the people that he's working with. And then he, um, after he finishes there, he goes to uh, the land of the Rohirrim mm -hmm. and he works there with actually Theoden's father, uh, so that's, he goes out of his way to learn the aspects of, you know, these different cultures mm -hmm. and the people that he will one day rule over. And I think it makes him a better man and it makes him a better king. There's a great humility there, that mm -hmm. willingness to work side by side with the people who someday you'll be ruling and be able to really understand them so you can serve them well. And understanding, it seems like he understands that to be a good leader is to serve. Yes. Um, I, it's interesting that you mentioned that about Aragorn, because one thing that I, I noticed that was different in the movie and the books, it was one of the first things that popped out, is the reluctant king versus the, and in a good way, self-confident leader who is ready to reclaim his birthright. Um, and the movies tell the story of a reluctant king. Mm -hmm. The books tell the story of somebody who has put in the time to learn what they will need for that role. He spent over, well, about 60 years 
um, learning and training and preparing. And he is ready by the time the fellowship leaves, he is ready to go claim his birthright. And the movies don't really go into that at all. They make it look like he's weak and he's, you know, he's not really ready to claim that. And it's, it's interesting as far as the, the, the different stories that you're telling there. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, there's something really beautiful, I think, about the confidence. Yeah, that's so interesting because it seems like there is a virtue to the reluctant king. And there is in a way that you don't want people in power who want power because those people want it for the sake of being able to rule other people. You want someone who is humbled, who doesn't want to be given that role, and they're probably going to make a better leader in the long run. But on the other hand, I think there is a virtue to what you're saying about Aragorn, which is someone who recognizes that they have a duty, that they have people who are relying on them, that they have, it's, it's like the Joan of Arc quote, like, I'm not afraid I was born to do this, Yes, where he was born to be a ruler and he recognizes the responsibility that comes with it and he rises the task. And it's, I was born into this kingdom, which is different than how we look at people in power today. I was born into this kingdom how can I become the best king possible for my people? And I'm going to step up into that role because this is what I was born into and I need to rise to the occasion to serve my people well. And of course, Tolkien is tapping into an older understanding of kingship mm-hmm. and, and a, I think a holier understanding of king, kingship um, and the responsibility that a king has to his people. Um, it would honestly be cowardly for Aragorn to keep the humble life of the ranger, which in some ways might be easier than Mm -hmm. stepping up and taking over the kingship and suddenly having all of these people that rely on him and whose care is entrusted to him and who he, you know, if he screws up, that's on him. Um, And all of these people would suffer for any mistake that he makes. In some ways it would stay, it would be easier for him to stay in the shadows and, uh, you know, protect from the shadows. Um, Mm -hmm. But it isn't what, his people need and it isn't what his duty is to them. And so again, you're looking at kingship uh, in the best possible light, a king who is a servant of the people who are underneath him. Yeah. That's beautiful. Okay. So then the next one we're going to talk about was Faramir. And I think it was interesting because we were talking about these characters beforehand and you were saying that Aragorn is a scholar, but he's also a fighter. And like the fighter is a little bit what gets emphasized there and like the leader versus Faramir knows how to fight, but the scholar is more of what gets emphasized. So they both draw out these different qualities of masculinity and have their, they both have both qualities. It's not that like being a good fighter is opposed to being a scholar or being a scholar is opposed to being a fighter, but that men need to have both. And then depending on personality, they might lean more into one and more into the other. Yeah, how complimentary they are. So what else would you say about Faramir? Well, I don't know if I I summarize that well either. No, that's that's actually pretty good. Um, They are both, fighting scholars um or uh, you know they're they're both mm-hmm. they have they're both scholars and they both fight um or warriors a warrior scholar is probably a better way of putting that okay um but i do think that um faramir is much more of the academic let's call him a steward for lack of a better term that is mm-hmm. his act that is the role that he takes on by the end of lord of the rings um where he has uh this isn't a perfect comparison but let's throw in the idea of high king peter from narnia versus King Edmund. Mm-hmm. Um, not that, I mean, Aragorn obviously has very many elements of Edmund the Just. I mean, mm-hmm. he's making wise, just decisions as a leader. Um, but Edmund is also a good example of a literary character who knows how to follow. Mm-hmm. Um, he's not, he's a leader and a follower. And I think this can be very misinterpreted. Um, but I would say 
a, an interesting trait of Faramir's is that he's a good follower, which that's, yeah, not something you normally hear about <laughs> and definitely not something you think of with masculinity. But I think it is so important that people recognize it comes down to humility, recognizing when you should listen to authority and follow authority versus when you need to step up and take the lead for those who you're supposed to be leading. Yes, definitely. Um, and he's obviously primed to be a good follower in the sense that he's coming from a line of stewards who have been holding on to the kingdom of Gondor, hoping that someday the king will return. And we, we do see the difference in Faramir versus his father, Denethor, and his brother, Boromir, um, and how they see that. Boromir, as a child, actually asks his father if, you know, how long it takes for a steward to become a king. And he's clearly, I mean, Boromir is overall not a bad person, mm -hmm. but there we'll is, get into him in a few minutes, but yeah, there's definitely a little bit more of a, you know, urge there to rule. Um, whereas I think Faramir is, and, and you, not everybody can be a leader. I mean, we all know that most people are going to have to follow. Um, and so having a, a person who is good at following, um, and who is good at, both following and leading, I mean, there has to be a hierarchy there. Mm -hmm. Somebody's going to be on top. It's a mixed bag. You're, mm -hmm. There's going to be points in your life where you need to follow and points in your life where you need to lead. And be, having the prudence to be able to figure out which one is which and be able to do each of those well is so important. But like we were saying, it seems like people always focus on the leadership qualities of masculinity and not the need to also know when to follow. Mm -hmm. And in Faramir, he... He's the captain of the Rangers, um, and he has been, by his position, um, he has been primed to be a good leader. And I'm certainly not saying that he isn't. Mm -hmm. um, but I would say, generally speaking, he's not interested in fighting for the sake of fighting. There's an absolutely beautiful quote um, where he says, he loves not the bright sword for its sharpness, nor the arrow for its swiftness, nor the warrior for his glory, but only what they defend. And I yeah. think that's really, really important to remember as far as what are you fighting for? And Faramir never forgets that. Whereas I think at points, um, Denethor and, and definitely Boromir do forget that. And that's, that can be a very easy thing, I think, to get caught up in the battle and forget about what you're fighting for. I also, from what you were saying, it sounds like Faramir is one of those characters who didn't have a great father figure but still was able to rise to the occasion, was able to overcome that, and is a great model for people who might be growing up either without a father or having a bad relationship with their father to recognize that that doesn't need to weigh you down, that you can rise above that. How does he do that? <laughs> well, it's um, Faramir's a very interesting character when it comes to that because he has a living father. Okay. Um, he has a living father who holds the highest position in the country um, and a father who perhaps was kinder when he was younger before his wife died um and has become embittered and cold um and very much favors faramir's older brother and so to both of to both of the sons credit um faramir and boromir they still managed to have a really good relationship with each other despite the fact that boromir is the favored son and faramir is the looked down upon son they don't let that affect their own relationship um, but I think part of the reason that Faramir is able to do that is because he actually has Gandalf as a father figure in some ways, um, to the extent where there is a point where Denethor, rather Im embittered and angry, actually basically complains that he's listening to the wizard over his own father, mm -hmm. um, despite the fact that in many ways Gandalf has earned his loyalty as well mm -hmm. and has um, especially, I would say, taught him compassion um, a huge, huge trait in Faramir is his ability to show compassion. Um, 
and also to to know when to obey and and when to disobey. I mean, obviously, we all know at this point, I mean, there's been some very obvious historical examples of how terrible it is to just be a good soldier and follow orders. And um, in some ways, Boromir is more of the good soldier who follows orders um, in the sense that when he gets the option to take the ring and bring it back to his father, that's what he does. Um, And obviously the ring would have twisted that and we'll go more into that. Faramir is offered actually a much more benign in some ways version of that. And he manages to do what his brother couldn't. And here's where you have to separate the movies from the books. If I understand you, I've, I've seen the movies way more recently than I've read the books. So can you explain how it's different in each one? Because I think that's very important. Okay. Uh, yes. <laughs> that's actually uh, a major complaint I have with the Lord <laughs> of the Rings movies. They're fantastic movies in many ways, um, but they get Faramir wrong. Um, Faramir in the movies is underconfident. Um, they make him the good soldier who follows orders. Um, Faramir in the books is much more his own man. Um, he's abil- He has an ability to think on his own and to separate what I'm ordered to do with what I'm morally obligated to do, I would say. So in the movies, Mm -hmm. um, when he comes upon Frodo and Sam in the um, forest of Ithilien, he doesn't listen to them when they tell him about how they need to get to Morador. Um, He's really unwilling to do anything more than look at them at face value. And he's like, I'm going to obey orders. I'm taking you back to... He actually gets them all the way to Osgiliath, um, and he's going to take them to Minas Tirith, you know, to be judged before his father. Whereas in the books, it's very clear that um, Gondor has a longstanding rule that uh, it's a time of war. If somebody is found wandering in these forests, um, it's very much close to the out, you know, the outskirts of their territory. They are to be captured and brought back to Gondor, and if a soldier disobeys that they're actually you know liable to being executed um for dereliction of duty uh and faramir is presented with this choice where he can obey the letter of the law there and bring them back to minas tirith or he can let them go on and fulfill their quest um he gets to know them a little better he sits down and talks with them you know tries to gain an understanding and that's another really big trait that faramir um, is portrayed as having is an understanding of people um, mm-hmm. and, a, and being a good judge of character um, and being able to see very cleanly into what somebody's motives and um, purpose is. Mm-hmm. Um, he quite accidentally finds out about the ring and really he should be very tempted by it. Um, he, again, he's not really originally a soldier. He's a soldier by necessity. Um, it's not something that he seeks out. And so having the ring should give him an easy, quick um, path, both to his father's love, um, mm-hmm. since his brother failed to bring it back at that point and has passed away, and an easy path to being able to put down the sword and, you know, rebuild the city that he loves. Um, Targeted temptations. <laughs> yes. And and he comes through that with flying colors. Um, he has enough character and enough wisdom to realize what the temptation is and completely bypass it in many ways. He does not drag them off. And then really putting his own life on the line as far as disobeying that rule, he lets them go. And it's important that he comes back 
Um, he could have, I suppose, just fudged a report, as we would say now. Um, but he comes back and he reports to his father about what what, what happened. And, and Denethor is going to, if anything, be harder on him because he's his son. He's not going to get any favors there. Mm-hmm. So he does disobey this longstanding rule, um, which ultimately allows the ring to be destroyed. But he also comes back and he doesn't hide from what he's done either. I think that's important that he doesn't, you know, fudge the report or lie or gloss over that he owns up to takes responsibility for the action and said i made this judgment call yeah do with me what you will pretty much yeah okay so now let's go into boromir his brother and boromir's the one does not simply walk into mordor character correct is that the original name um yes that's for anyone who may not know the stories That's how I knew him for a while. So, uh, yes, honestly, that was probably one of the first memes that I ever saw. Still very fond of it. He does not say that in the book. Um, okay. But is that that's the character we're talking about? It is. Okay. Um, so yes, Boromir is is bold. Um, he's adventurous. He's a soldier through and through. He's a leader of men. Um, he's the favored son, and in many ways, he's a good person. Um, he loves his brother, even that would have been, I mean, honestly, when you think about sibling relationships where one kid is favored and the other one is constantly denigrated by their parent figure, most of the time they end up having a terrible relationship. The favorite, older, by the way, Boromir. Boromir. So, so he's the oldest son who's favored and Faramir. he could very easily look down on his little brother. And instead he is really good to his little brother. Um, oh. and in many ways, I, I would say that Faramir also looks up a lot to Boromir, just going back to who he looks up to. Yeah. Um, he's better than Boromir in many ways, but he certainly looks up to him and he doesn't look, I mean, he definitely doesn't look down on him character wise. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, Boromir is, he's, he's, the, he's the warrior. Um, he's the warrior archetype on many levels. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, I mean, he rides um, all the way from Gondor to Rivendell um, to get an answer to a prophetic dream that his brother had. Um, I mean, Denethor sends him as his emissary. Um, he had the dream once, um, but really Faramir, he's he's going on the word of his brother. And I mean, you throw out the idea of like a prophetic dream as a reason to make <laughs> a really long journey, like, you know, half a world away um, in Middle Earth terms. And that's pretty impressive. Um, he's he's desperate to bring peace and desperate to, you know, protect his people. And, and that desperation drives him to Rivendell, to the Council of the Elves, which ordinarily, like at this point in their history, the Gondorians have no interest in denethor has very little use for elves um or wizards or anyone who's you know perceived as kind of elvish and that's honestly one of his complaints about faramir okay uh so he comes all the way to rivendell only to find out you know the answer to the riddle um of his brother's dream and end up in a position to help make peace a reality Mm -hmm. and I mean, as the son of the of the steward, uh, he has a lot of other responsibilities. And it's really um, telling that, I mean, he is going back to Gondor. It's just a little more of a roundabout way. Mm-hmm. But it's it's really telling that he, volu- you know, well, he doesn't volunteer, actually. I should point that out. Um, the Fellowship of the Ring volunteers in the movie. They are chosen in the book. The only people that volunteer are Frodo and Sam and Merry and Pippin kind of force themselves onto the fellowship by threatening to follow them anyways, if they don't, you know, let them come along. I think they threaten that they're going to escape and follow them unless, uh, and I quote Pippin here, I think, 
they are sent back to the Shire tied up in a sack. <laughs> it's the only way they're going to get rid of them. Um, but Boromir is approached by Elrond and he okay. certainly agrees to come along and help. And he's very out of his element in many ways. Um, of the company of nine, only two of them are men. Um, one is a wizard that G- Boromir has some passing acquaintance with. He's not super close to Gandalf, but he is a familiar figure. Mm-hmm. Um a elven prince who he knows nothing about except that his people just lost Gollum, uh, which isn't necessarily the greatest uh, resume there. Um, a dwarf um, and Gimli um, and the four hobbits. It, it's, it's a very odd mix. And the fact that Boromir is willing to come along with them says a lot about, I mean, the Gondorians at this point are a little close minded about the other races. I, I would say, uh, so I mean, I think that speaks very well of him. And um, what do you think stands out about him, though? In many ways, Boromir is always going to be remembered for his flaws, um, okay. because he is the one member of the Fellowship that falls to the temptation of the Ring. And I think that's what a, causes him to fall. It's the desperation, I think, um, and overconfidence in his own abilities um, pride. and pride. Um, Faramir is humble enough to realize that the Ring will wield him, and not he the Ring. Okay. Uh, Boromir, in many ways, actually, I think also being the favorite son puts him in a bad position because he wants to bring the ring back to Denethor and make him proud. He's looking for a weapon. He wants he wants an easy solution. He wants a quick fix to getting rid of Sauron forever, and the ring feels like that. And so it plays on that desperation. In There's, a sense, would you say he's never really learned to control? Well, I guess he has learned to control his passions because he's a good man in other ways, but it seems like there's a sense there where he isn't ready to play the long game he just wants like you said the quick fix he wants the solution too soon even if it's not ethical i mean he's been fighting for so long it's very hard to look down on that i mean he's been fighting his entire mm-hmm. life um he's grown up in the shadow of mordor okay. um so yes it's a, a quick fix is like one way to put it um but certainly i think it's it's the pride that's the overwhelming issue there um, the desire to make his father proud, even if it's not a good action that's going to make him proud, whereas mm-hmm. Faramir has been able to separate um, more from what his father expects of him versus what he knows he should do, mm-hmm. whereas I don't think Boromir has been able to do that. Um, and and the ring plays on everyone's um, deepest fears and hopes. Uh, mm-hmm. That's the way it works. And as Gandalf says, uh, you know, if he took the ring, it's going to try and find it's going to offer him a way to better the world. Um, but you can't better the world with evil. Um, yeah. You can't use evil as a means to an end. And and Boromir loses that part of the equation. And he's so desperate and so worried um, that he lets himself fall to it. Which brings us to, I think, the most defining part of Boromir is the fact that he he falls and then he picks himself back up. That's impressive. Because And it's interesting because Denethor, his father, despairs later in the story and mm-hmm. commits suicide. And, I mean, suicide is not encouraged in, the, in, in this culture at all. Mm-hmm. But Denethor is a very proud man. He's, you know, seeing the collapse of what he sees as everything that, you know, that he's ever lived for or worked for and his ancestors have worked for. And he gives in to that. Mm-hmm. Boromir, you know, as somebody who is a good leader... And has been in a position of authority from a young age and, you know, has never really seriously misstepped. Suddenly, like, 
at that point in his life, I think he's about 45, suddenly misstepping and failing just so badly. And it, I mean, repentance is a, a fine line there between falling into despair. I mean, we see that, you know, mm-hmm. throughout history, we see it in the Bible with Judas. I mean, he really, truly, you know, repents of having turned Christ in after he sees just how badly wrong it went. Mm-hmm. But being able to not despair at that point, I think is so important to Bormir. And it's important as somebody who has always been, I think, a very masculine man. I think that is a really good thing for boys and men and girls even to be able to see is that like someone who has been working, who has been trying, who is a good person and who has been trying their whole life and hasn't really failed to then fall that drastically and to still be able to pick yourself up and keep going. Like in some ways, like falling down two or three stairs when you're already struggling to walk isn't as big of a deal as someone who's like climbed all the way up and then falls all the way back down and has to start over again. And I think the fact that he doesn't despair in that case is so impressive and such a really, such a good thing for people to be able to see and see modeled for them. Yeah, um, definitely. I mean, it's, it's so important. I mean, how many characters do you see in stories where they fall and they come back? Edmund. Edmund, yes. Um, there's a, but other than that, yeah. I mean, there's a hefty dose of Aslan in there. Whereas Lewis and Token both to have the character who falls that bad and gets back up. But, but even but... there, even there, Edmund is a kid who mm-hmm. isn't fully understand what he has just agreed to. He offers to bring his brothers and sisters to the witch. But he thinks the witch is good. Yes, he's a, he's a distorted. He's already been, um, like, his mind has already been corrupted by... Mm-hmm you know, what he's eaten and like uh, her influence over him. He's not actively coming, bringing them to be killed. Mm -hmm. He's bringing them to, you know, be more powerful than them. To get magic candy to eat forever. (laughs) Well, and to kind of see Peter get like some comeuppance and stuff like that. He's not turning them over to be killed. Boromir actively chases Frodo with intent to kill um, Mm. in, in trying to take the ring from him. And so being able to come back from that and turn around and defend the other hobbits and die doing that is really, really impressive. Um, And I do wonder, like, I mean, I'm not saying that any of Tolkien's friends had similar situations, but I do think um, there's a realism to war and failure uh, that Tolkien brings to his books, that even fantasy stories that pride themselves on being grittier than Mm -hmm. Lord of the Rings lose. I mean, you get a real sense that war is necessary sometimes that it can you know it's can be a defense and it and it's necessary and men should be willing to fight um but it's to protect those ones at home like you said from the quote from Faramir, it's where not it's a not beautiful for thing same. it's not this glorious like viking fever dream and i i think a lot of media can sometimes portray war it's almost a good thing yeah as a means to glory yeah yeah. And and Tolkien, I think, is very good about reminding us that it is a product of a fallen world. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the next ones we were going to talk about were Legolas and Glimly. But before we get there, we have to address the effeminate elves. They're in the movie. How? Why is Legolas even an example of masculinity? And how can he be when his hair is perfect and he looks like a stick? Uh, well... Let's talk about how the movies got the elves wrong on basically every level. Okay. Um, yes. There's a lot of things the Lord of the Rings movies did right. I, I think fundamentally the people who were making the movies do not get Tolkien's elves. Um, 
one of the reasons Tolkien wrote the elves was be, I mean, the wrote the elves the way they were. And he was actually, he, there were times when he went back and forth on whether or not he should have even used the term elves um, because it's tied up with so many other things uh, um, and kind of like diminutive fairy folk kind of um, connotations there. Mm-hmm. And so he went back and forth on that. But he, when, when Tolkien was picturing elves, he's picturing basically... I guess an English version of demigods. Like the, okay. think about the kind of people that you see in Greek mythology, Jason and Perseus. And like, I mean, those are the kind of like supernaturally long lived, you know, extremely strong mm-hmm. um, people that he's picturing for the elves. There were like, yes, there's a good deal of token basis for the long hair, um, but it, no, probably not the L'Oreal commercial long hair, hair that we get in the movies. Um, and and actually, some people asked him about Legolas, and and the uh, I mean, certainly about the fact that he could be perceived as effeminate. And uh, there's a great t- quote from him, which I will actually read it in its entirety because it's fantastic. Um, talking about Legolas, he says that he was as tall as a young tree, lithe and immensely strong able to swiftly draw a great war bow and shoot down in Nazgul, endowed with the tremendous vitality of elvish bodies, so hard and resistant to hurt that he went only in light shoes over rock and through snow, and that he was the most tireless of all the fellowship. So even compared to Aragorn, who is a consummate warrior, Mm -hmm. I mean, there's points during um, the trip that they make across um, Rohan where Legolas is like totally willing to still be going on and Gimli and Aragorn are like we need to stop and get some sleep here um so just to be clear um the Legolas that you're seeing in the movies is not the Legolas that you're seeing in the books Mm -hmm. um or the elves in general yes they're very aloof um Tolkien's elves um can be aloof um but there's in many ways they're kind of schizophrenic as far as like how they perceive the world like one minute they'll be basically a carefree child and the next minute they'll be like a stern warrior um and they're able to reconcile that and they're really fascinating as far as i don't think i've ever seen any fictional race that quite is like the elves there's been a lot of poorer imitations Mm -hmm. but nothing that's quite as fascinating as i mean the elves are my personal favorite i'll just be honest book leg loss is not effeminate um Long hair and all. I mean, Glorfindel, um, who is the first elf that you're, the first high elf that you're introduced to mm-hmm. in the Fellowship, who shows up on his horse at the point where the movie substituted Arwen. Um, and I mean, the Nazgul, all nine of them are freaked out by him. He's that impressive, both physically and spiritually. And okay. there is a hefty spiritual element, um, certainly to somebody like Glorfindel. Um, yes, he has long golden hair that he doesn't tie up, which is a funny story in its own right, because he once accidentally fell off a cliff because he didn't tie up his hair and a ball rug pulled him down. But <laughs> I, I, I digress. digress. <laughs> yes, very much so. Going back to Legolas, um, I don't. Th- I think it's hard to talk about Legolas and Gimli without each other because their friendship is such a huge part of Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. And it's such an important part as far as who they are at the start of the book and who they finish as. And I think just in general, talking about masculinity and examples of masculinity for boys and adults and boys and men, 
I think that male friendship, it's people don't recognize that in today's day and age anymore. And it's so important for men to have good male friends. And when I had when we had um, Dr. Fagan on the podcast, he was talking about the need for men to have good friends. And I think that that's why their friendship is so important to talk about in this episode is that men need examples of friendship in literature to be able to see modeled for them what they could have in real life. And their friends, they're, they're not just, I mean, they are friends in battle, but mm-hmm. they're not just friends in battle. And, and I think the movie leans heavily on the brothers in arms aspect of Gimli and Legolas's friendship, which is not a bad part of that friendship, but it's a lot deeper than just the brothers in arms. Um, I mean, we come from this background. There is an ongoing feud between elves and dwarves. There's some very, very old and bitter history there. So the initial, the initial meeting there is not very positive. Um, and in fact, there's points during the early part of the fellowship where Legolas and Gimli are sniping at each other so much that Gandalf has to be like, please, would the two of you at least try and get along? <laughs> I mean, it's ob- obnoxious enough that it's actually causing issues. Yeah. Um, and you get the sense that they are both getting along with the other members of the Fellowship. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't necessarily see Boromir and Legolas having deep conversations, but, you know, they could, the rest of them are all getting along. I mean, they're mm-hmm. maybe not, like, super close friends yet, but you can only travel so long with a group of people without getting to know them fairly well. Mm-hmm. Um, but by the time they get to Moria, um, there's a lot of of enmity and, and pent-up tension there that's bubbling over into active hostility, I, I was going to say. say, do you think that that is a moral failing on the part of both Legolas and Gimli that they are being aggressive to the other person? Or do you think it's an example of two virtuous people whose personalities don't jive? I think it's a combination. Um, okay. I, I do think there is, I mean, obviously they've both been raised um, a certain way. Um, and so they would have to go against that mm-hmm. conditioning to see the other person as, you know, somebody who is at least a possible friend um, instead of an enemy. I mean, they have been raised to see each other as, I mean, at the very least an adversary, if not an enemy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not going to say that's entirely a moral failing. Um, and I do think they're both good people but even, even that before that. is still a prejudice that is still a moral failing in a sense because you're not seeing the worth of the other person. Yes. I'm just saying it's not entirely their fault. Okay. Um, but That's I do fair. think, I do think it le- raises to the level of a moral failure that they both overcome by the end of the story. Um, mm-hmm. and it makes them both better people, um, which is the whole point of a journey, um, mm-hmm. like the one that is portrayed in Lord of the Rings. So after Moria, um, they do obviously fight together in Moria. Um, and after Gandalf falls and they come to Lothlorien, you see a, a friendship that everyone is frankly very surprised <laughs> about blossom and and i think a huge part of that is probably the influence of moria moria obviously was a stronghold of the dwarves legolas gets to see gimli in his element when he's very out of his element mm-hmm. um gimli then sees legolas in lothlorien in his element where he's very out of it what do you think about their friendship is really important for men to see i think it's really important to see like that difference and to see see the differences and see how they bring out the best in each other. Once they become friends, mm-hmm. they both are able, and I actually, I heard this recently in a, a talk about friendship. The priest who was giving the the talk was talking about how if you have a group of three people, um, let's say three guys, mm-hmm. um, 
And Adam, John, and Ben all have certain characteristics. And when Ben and Adam hang out, you know, they're going to have certain things that they bring out in each other Mm -hmm. that are good. And when Adam and John hang out, there's going to be certain things that they bring out that are good. And the same with um, the the third there. And if you lose one of those people, you're not just losing that person, but you're also losing all of the good that they bring out in the other two. Mm -hmm. And those two that are left are left bereft of the parts of themselves that only came out when that third person was there. Um, And that's getting a little convoluted, but I think it's important to look at how Gimli and Legolas interact later on. They're Mm -hmm. both... They're both nature lovers, I guess you could you could say, to put it very, very baldly. Um, and they both appreciate the natural world, but they appreciate different aspects of it. Um, as a dwarf, like or Gimli is drawn to stone and stonework and carving um, and the underground and caves. And there's a wild sense of natural beauty there um, mm-hmm. and a sense of shaping it and ordering it and bringing beauty to that, um, you know, solidity and... Um, strength um and stone and metal work and that kind of stuff legolas as an elf obviously is drawn to much more untamed nature and growing things and plants and all of that and so you actually see them bringing that the best out in each other when legolas convinces gimli to come into the forest with him and to appreciate trees that he would other see otherwise see as just useful for building a fire um as these you know and tolkien obviously had a huge love for trees so that's so important to have have a dwarf that looks at trees and sees them as things of beauty um yeah and doesn't want to pull them down i mean the worst thing you could possibly do i think in tolkien's mind was cut down trees and then um, legolas in return agrees to go into caves Legolas is not a fan of caves he's really uh, not at his best the entire time in the memoria because he can't see in the dark as well as he can in the light. And so there's, and there's like a claustrophobia there and being Mm -hmm. underground. It's very much against everything that he likes. Um, And he sees stone as something that's dead and gone. Um, And it's interesting because there's a line where he's uh, when they're outside Moria, where he says the stones, he can kind of hear the stones, um, but not the way that he can hear the trees. I mean, elves have this huge connection with nature. Mm -hmm. Um, and Gimli's able to make him appreciate that and show him the beauty of the, the glittering caves of Aglarond, which is where, where he takes him. And so they're both kind of drawing out a new love in the other person for something they wouldn't have appreciated otherwise. Like my like mm-hmm. like your love for something would draw out my appreciation of it, even if it's something I wouldn't naturally like on my own. Yes. And obviously there's other examples of that that's i think one of the most obvious ones Mm -hmm. um but it's a friendship that goes deeper than just battlefield banter um which is a lot of what you get and and legolas is not aloof i think that's a huge issue with the way he's portrayed in the movies he he's an aloof quipster Mm -hmm. he just says he's the elto of the of the fellowship um okay so when i was in choir um the elto part of any piece usually was the part that filled in the gaps that were left by the other three voice parts. Um, So, you know, your sopranos sing your melody, your tenors and your bass are, you know, filling in the guys parts of that. And then the alto fills in all the gaps. So you usually end up with really 
odd combinations of no- <laughs> notes. Mm-hmm. Um, but Legolas in the movie, he kind of does that. He'll, like when you need something obvious said or a little bit of exposition or just like a random comment to fill in the silence. Or some nice hair. <laughs> or that. You, you throw Legolas in to state the obvious. Uh, whereas, whereas Legolas is much more approachable. Um, in some ways, he's more like the hobbits. I would say than like somebody like you can almost relate to them better than somebody like Boromir can. Okay. So we had Legolas and Gimli and their friendship and how they both draw out the best in each other and how that's a really great model for being able to overcome prejudices that are sometimes there versus either personality or just how you're growing up thinking, perceiving other people, how they overcome that and have this really strong friendship because of it. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think the last main characters left are the hobbits. If, yeah, I mean, we're going through the fellowship. We should probably throw some Gandalf in there. Oh, that's true too. <laughs> as yeah. well. Um, but yes, um, the hobbits. Um, I, I am going to gloss over them a little bit more, um, just far as like the, we see a lot of the same traits in, in them. Yeah, um, we don't have to go through each one necessarily, going into each one in depth individually, but hobbits as a whole, and then specific ones that the, that the others bring out. I mean, the hobbits are your everyman characters. Um, okay. They're the, the untried people. I mean, everyone else has already had contact with evil and mm-hmm. like the kind of evil that you get, um, you know, fighting orcs and Nazgul. And, you know, there's a, a, the hobbits. I mean, yes, I'm not saying like oh, Hobbiton is not entirely idyllic, but the kind of like petty evil you're dealing with is like Lobelia Sackville Baggins stealing your silver spoons and not returning them. <laughs> it's, you know, a hobbit girl that spends too much time looking in the mirror and admiring her curls, uh, which Bilbo does actually write a uh, response to something <laughs> something like that at one point. Would you say that, like, the other characters in the Fellowship show, like, virtue that's already been practiced and the habit has already been formed and it's showing more of the excellence of virtue versus the hobbits kind of show the raw material of, like, they haven't really developed the virtue yet because they haven't encountered a chance to have to build it? I mean, I would certainly say that in the Fellowship, the Hobbits, I suppose, very broadly, you could say they are the young men or the boys, the the adolescents who grow into men. Whereas, I mean, Aragorn's already spent 60 plus years walking around Middle Earth fighting evil. I mean, mm-hmm. Legolas, we don't know how old he is. He's the son of the Elven King. He lives in Mirkwood. He's been fighting this probably as long as he's been alive. We know Boromir has. Mm-hmm. I mean, Gandalf is basically a version of St. Michael um, <laughs> in many ways. I mean, he's not an angel. Um, that's in, Actually, we'll get to that when we talk about Gandalf. He can fall. Um, but he's obviously, you know far beyond the rest of them in terms of how long he's been fighting evil and, you know, been growing and, and maturing. I mean, he's thousands of years older than anyone else. Mm-hmm. Well, he's, I mean, he's been before the dawn of the world. Um, yeah. I, the other characters, uh, Bor- yeah, we talked about Boromir. Mm-hmm. Gimli, obviously, is uh, dwarves live longer than men. Mm-hmm. He's been fighting for a long time. But, yeah, I the the... The hobbits are being pulled out of their comfort zone. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really impressive because most hobbits have no desire to leave their comfy surroundings. Mm-hmm. And Frodo obviously has grown up listening to Bilbo. Frodo's another character that doesn't really have, um, well, he doesn't have a biological father figure. Okay. Um, both of his parents die in a boating accident, which shows you how unusual they are because most hobbits stay as far away from rivers as possible. Um, and 
his parents drowning that was a big deal. And it made people even more inclined to stay away from messing about on boats, as Sam, I think, puts it. Um, but Bill grows up, or Frodo grows up with Bilbo as his father figure. And, and Gandalf obviously makes an appearance as well. So he's growing up hearing tales of Bilbo's adventures. And um, obviously that's interesting to him. I think of all of the, um, obviously Faramir is not part of the fellowship, but of all of the people we've talked about, um, Faramir is probably the one that's most like Frodo in some ways. They both have a scholarly aspect. Um, Both of them are not really interested in, both of them would honestly probably rather have their nose in a book than be out fighting a battle. Um, But both of them rise to the challenges that they are given Mm -hmm. um, and they do the best with what they are given. Um, And Frodo, I think obviously the defining characteristic is going to be the self-sacrifice and the perseverance. Mm -hmm. Um, Frodo, I mean, hobbits are more immune to the ring, but it does take a toll on them. Frodo is incredibly strong-willed. I don't think there's anyone else, maybe not even Sam, that could have carried the ring as long and as far as Frodo did. Uh, and it takes an incredible toll on him. Uh, there's saints that describe the dark night of the soul. And in some ways, what Tolkien describes Frodo by the end of the journey sounds similar to that. I mean, he's talking about how there's just nothing. It's his mind and his body and his soul. It's just arid. Um, and all he has is, I mean, hope and friendship and his, you know, strength of will. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I think that really people lose out on that aspect, especially when it comes to Sam. Sam is incredibly loyal. Sam is totally not tempted by the ring. Um, the best temptation the ring can muster up for Sam is the entire world being a garden. And that's really appealing to Sam. And he promptly, like, puts it aside in, like, under, you know, 30 seconds. He's He's not interested in that. And I mean, even though that's what would be most appealing to him, Frodo of all the hobbits could probably become more powerful, like the most powerful if any of the hobbits fell to the power of the ring. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, he certainly wouldn't and never come close to somebody like Gandalf or Elrond falling to the power of the ring. Mm-hmm. But it is, it's a testament to his strength of will. Um, he's not especially imposing. Um, he is smaller than almost anyone else on his team except for the other hobbits and it doesn't matter because he has the courage and the again strength of will to push through all of the that perseverance mm. is such a huge part of his character and tolkien really emphasizes that frodo doesn't throw the ring into mount doom he can't um by that point he's just carried the ring too long but he does, and Tolkien emphasized this, he does everything humanly possible to get to the ring to where it needed to be. Mm-hmm. And yes, he's saved by Gollum Ex Machina um, to be, you know, very facetious about it. But ultimately, Gollum being there doesn't matter if Frodo hadn't had the will and the courage to push through absolutely horrifying odds. Um I have a hard time reading the dead marshes and the parts where Sam and Frodo are trekking through Mordor because Tolkien is able to describe so vividly how dry and uninhabitable and light, utterly lifeless mm-hmm. what they are going through. It's is. funny because like you don't necessarily think of the hobbits as like the masculine characters of the book, 
but like mm-hmm. that ability to keep going through something so dog and perseverance exactly it's like that is such a good trait for men to be able to have and women too but again like but it is more associated with guys yeah and it's just i think it's i love how you've been able to kind of tease out these masculine traits from characters that aren't always on the surface level what you think of when you think masculinity in lord of the rings you immediately Mm -hmm. think maybe legolas definitely aragorn maybe boromir but being able to bring it out of the hobbits is so important to be able to show that they also have these virtues that Mm -hmm. men need to be able to like imitate and mm-hmm. see well and mary and pippin i think uh, mary and pippin often get lumped together um mm-hmm. mary and pippin are not the same person um <laughs> at all i mean people really do confuse them um again problem with the movies but mary is much mary's older than pippin um mary actually i think probably has more in common with frodo than sam has with frodo um if he Why? mary is a planner um uh, mary's okay. the one that reads maps mary wants to know where he's going um mary is the one that orchestrates the hobbits going with frodo and sam mm-hmm. like he's the one that real he finds out about the ring before frodo finds out about the ring because he saw bilbo use it and he just kept mom about it and like snuck around and spied it out um so he's the one that um you know really i mean pippin obviously is going to go along with it but he's the one that figures out what's going on and that frodo is leaving mm-hmm. uh and He's loyal. Um, I mean, we see the fact that he, I mean, he goes from being clever and, and enterprising and brave and intelligent um, at the beginning of the fellowship to one of the killers of the witch king of, of Angmar. I mean, you, Mary from the beginning of the fellowship, it, it shows just how much he has grown. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was already an impressive hobbit. Um, just how much he's grown that by the end he can stand on his own two feet. I mean, just the kind of sheer moral fortitude that it would take to stab that witch king. I mean, most people, and, and it's emphasized over and over again, hearing him from thousands of feet in the air scares people and sends people cowering in fear. How but, do you think he developed that moral fortitude? I mean, it's it's the same way that anyone develops moral fortitude by overcoming smaller trials and exercising their, I mean, virtue, the muscles of your virtues is probably the best way of putting yeah, building that. Building your yeah, virtue muscles. Um, yeah. It doesn't happen overnight. You it, it takes smaller trials that you overcome and you persevere through. And the same thing happens with to Pippin. Um, I mean, Pippin is adorable in some ways. Um, and in, you know, he's clever and smart and a little bit of a goof off. And he's technically still like, the Hobbit version of a teenager when the fellowship starts. And by the end, he manages to kill like a troll at the, at the battle before the black gate. Again, trolls are twisted ends. Pippin is like maybe three foot two or, I mean, actually by that point he's drunk uh, the, the waters of the ant wash and it's made him taller. So he maybe is three foot five (laughs) or six. Uh, and, and by the end, I think it's really interesting the way that Mary and Pippin are described after they come back. Mm-hmm. They're the Mary Knights of the Fellowship by the end. They're both, uh, Pippin's a Knight of Gondor, Mary's a Knight of Rohan, and they come back and they fit all of the best parts of like this medieval idea of chivalry. Mm-hmm. You know, they're taller than the other hobbits, which is hilarious, um, but they're merry and happy and um joyful and you and you see that radiate out they're confident um 
they're, I mean, after the scouring of the Shire, they're defenders of, you know, people who can't defend themselves. And it's really cool. I mean, they, they sound like something out of like a Hobbit Arthurian legend, kind of. Um, and of course, we want we want to look at Sam. Um, obviously, his defining trait is loyalty. Um, I mean, it doesn't take a very long read. Um, he is incredibly loyal. Um, but he's also, um, he's really good at teasing out hope i think i mean and there's there's a fantastic line um when frodo and sam are in mordor um everything as i said is it's dry it's lifeless it's utterly demoralizing Mm -hmm. and there's at that point there's dark clouds that have veiled most of the sky the stars you can't see the stars through there is one star that gets through and sam is also surprisingly poetic i mean because he is kind of your every man he's he's you know farmer um and he's lying back there looking up at the sky and he he brings up this whole idea of the fact that he and frodo are just a small part of this larger story um and an ongoing story um and even if at this point sauron wins and they fail there's still um he puts it light and high beauty forever beyond the reach of evil and there's something like so beautiful about that and being able to tease out that hope and that light in the midst of darkness. I mean, he's so, the hobbits are so tiny. They're ants compared to this like huge machinery of, of Sauron's war. I mean, there's thousands and thousands of orcs marching around them. This entire land, this looming volcano, magical volcano. I mean, it's, it, I think it's very hard to describe just how insignificant they are compared to all of that Mm -hmm. and how hard it is not to be just overwhelmed by the sheer might of evil and we Mm -hmm. see characters that that tolkien paints out um saruman who is wise and clever and intelligent in his own right he's also very prideful he starts Mm -hmm. off as a good character Mm -hmm. um and by the time we meet him in the fellowship he's gone bad but as an actual person um, but he sees himself as very significant. He needs to make his mark on the world, mm-hmm. you know, and he needs to he needs to find things out, um, even if it means breaking them. And he gets overawed by the amount of the sheer show of strength that Sauron has, and it destroys him. Um, and he he would rather be powerful than be good. Um, Versus the hobbits are so humble, and they're and so, so small, and they're so insignificant. In some ways, and and yet what their core virtues and their strengths make up for all of that. No, yes. like a mustard seed comparison, mm-hmm. like the Gospels. If, like if you ever see a mustard seed from Israel, they're so incredibly tiny. They're not oh, yeah. your Dijon mustard seed that you see in the store. Mm-hmm. It, they're, they're, ab- they're like a speck of dust. And mm-hmm. that's, I guess, what the hobbits were like in the grand scheme of this mm-hmm. whole world. But it's also just important, I think um, – the hobbits you see people that are they're aware that they're small and insignificant and it doesn't matter because they're still willing to do what needs to be done Mm -hmm. they're loyal to each other and yes they're kind of a little bit lost i mean they're a little overawed they're in no one has half the time no one has ever met a hobbit um they call them halflings um they basically look like children um but they are adults, um, especially by the end of the story. And they've really grown up and become men. Um, before we finish, I do want to talk about Gandalf. Okay. Because he is the he's the link that ties the fellowship together. 
Um, he's even a link between Frodo and Sam and Faramir, actually. Okay. Um, because he's the one person that they've all met at some point or another, and they, he's had an influence on all of their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and Gandalf um, has a long and complicated backstory. Um, you don't see much of it in Lord of the Rings. You see glimpses of it. Mm-hmm. But he belongs to a race of, easiest way to say it is angelic beings, um, but they're not angels. And I think people get confused about that. Um, angels made their choice. Um, some mm-hmm. of them fell. Some of them didn't. And by nature, an angel can't change. change. They've yeah. made up their mind. It's like a, um, a human at the moment. Like when they die, that's it. You've either chosen, you know, you've made like a final repentance mm-hmm. and you want to spend eternity with God or you haven't and you've chosen hell. Mm-hmm. and um, Maya, the race that uh, Gandalf belongs to, are not like that. Sauron was a Maya. Sauron actually repented at one point and then failed in his repentance. Saruman um, could have repented but didn't um, and certainly was good at the start of his you know, career as a wizard. Um, Gandalf has so many opportunities to fall. Um, he is temptation after temptation with the ring um which is obviously why he you know he's i mean he sees a he sees a core of strength in the hobbits that a lot of other people don't because mm-hmm. they're they're small and he's humble enough to admit that they can do something that he can't i mean this is like that's really important this is like saint michael looking at a human and being like wow they can do something that i can't i'm immortal and you know so much more powerful than they can imagine like humans can't even really look at angels without falling down in fear. I mean, you read the Bible and that's, mm-hmm. I mean, angels in their like, even like human form mm-hmm. when they take it are incredibly terrifying um, with how much power they have. And for Gandalf to look at the hobbits and be able to admit that about himself is amazing. We also, um, a key trait of Gandalf is the compassion. And he comes off as a little crotchety in the movies. Yeah, I don't associate um, compassion with Gandalf from the little bit I know of him. Um, but if you remember, um, Bilbo and Frodo both learn a lot from Gandalf. And there's a point where they're, when he's when he's going through the history of the ring with Frodo. Mm-hmm. Um, and he talks about Gollum. Uh, Frodo points out that it was a pity that Bilbo didn't just kill Gollum when he had the chance. I mean, because he's a pitiful, evil, warped creature. Mm-hmm. And Gandalf says, pity it was pity that stayed his hand. Um, and, and even Gandalf is willing to give Gollum a second chance. I mean, he brings him to the wood elves who are also willing to kind of rehabilitate him. Mm-hmm. But Gandalf is divine is defined by not false compassion. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, cause there is, there is false compassion. Um, but Gandalf is offering sincere compassion and obviously he's dead by the time that Boromir falls. But I think it's telling that Aragorn, who is one of Gandalf's pupils um, in a very real way. I mean, he's also mentored by Gandalf. Mm-hmm. Um, is willing to give Boromir, you know, he's still willing to kind of work with Boromir even after Boromir falls. And he actually, yeah, um, it's just, it's a fascinating um, trait where you actually see like a trait passed down between mentor mm-hmm. and mentee. 
Yeah. Um, but Gandalf, um, he offers compassion to Saruman, like true compassion, where mm-hmm. Saruman needs to repent and help. Um, and Saruman is so prideful at that point that he can't stand the thought of being offered forgiveness. Mm. Like he honestly, it kind of comes back to. What do you mean he offers true compassion? I, I mean, not like a false compassion and not like, oh, um, not like an affirmation of what he's doing. Yeah. Like, oh, I get it. I get what you're going through. Yes. Um, Let me help you. <laughs> no, Saruman would certainly need to do repent and he would need to do the hard work of, you know, dealing with everything that he's done wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and if he's willing to do that, I mean, Gandalf, Gandalf would work him. with him. Would you say Gandalf is a good example of being able to like hold people accountable and call them to task, but at the same time extend forgiveness if they actually repent? In a sense? I would. And um, the ring that he carries, um, the ring of fire is supposed to help ignite a fire in the in the hearts um, of people. It doesn't necessarily give the, like, the, the chief power of the ring that Gandalf wears is to help bring courage to the hearts of the people around them. Interesting. Which is, okay. like, a fascinating trait for a character it's like that. He is with the fellowship. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I feel like in today's world, a lot of times people misunderstand compassion. Like, you see that... We um like with euthanasia, like oh, it's a false compassion. Like we're gonna help you through your suffering. Like mm-hmm. it's okay, not help you through the suffering. We're gonna mm-hmm. end the suffering by killing you. And I feel like it's really important for people to have examples in literature of characters who have extended true compassion, which is calling people to task, helping them through those really tough times without mm-hmm. ending it immorally. And it, it doesn't always work. Um, there is a very very prominent example of Gandalf offering compassion to Denethor. Gandalf stops him from from killing Faramir and tries to get him to go attend to the duties that he has. Mm-hmm. Um, and Denethor, he he just can't, at that point, he's, he's given in to despair. Mm-hmm. And so even after Gandalf holds out a hand, you know, even after that kind of horrific thing where he's like planning on killing his son, mm-hmm. um, and he turns around and he would rather die than face that kind of ruin and in doing so he completely misses out on the fact that the black ships that are coming actually have allies like he only sees what he thinks is happening and he completely loses his hope and it i mean he dies for that um and he dies he he's he can't take that compassion at that point i think and it's really sad but it's really cool that gandalf still offers it um, Gandalf is also um, very much associated with animals. We see mm-hmm. him with shadow facts who no one else can tame or work with. And there's something very telling about somebody. Men as women as well as men, but especially with a guy that. I'm not saying you can't ever like shoot an animal or hunt or anything like that. But there's something very telling about being gentle with something that is someone or something that is below you. Um, especially how you treat animals like needless cruelty uh, is always a red flag mm-hmm. and and we certainly see that with some of the characters in Tolkien and how they uh, they treat people below them and animals mm-hmm. there's just like the, the petty cruelties make Isn't good <laughs> no uh, yeah but anyways, um, I think we just exhausted the whole list of like all of the main characters. Oh, trust me, there are a lot more Tolkien I said characters. Main characters. <laughs> oh, I mean, if we wanted to dive into the Samoyan, there's plenty of main characters there. Um, but I think we'll leave that. That I for think people another... familiar with the movies and somewhat the books are going to know most of these um, names. So yeah. I knew all of them except for Faramir when we first started talking about this. So that speaks you could, a lot. You didn't remember who about... you didn't remember who Denethor was. 
You called him denim. You called him denim more. Yeah. Well, <laughs> makes him sound like a pair of jeans. Anyway, well, thank you so much for joining us today, Bridget. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And to all of our listeners, please like, subscribe, check out the new ebooks we have coming out, and keep on living the culture of life. God bless. <laughs> <laughs>